All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Our taxes, the price we pay for civilization. All of us are uh, asking that this month and uh, some of us are asking for our money back. Some people are actually moving to avoid all that civilization their taxes were supposed to be paying for. Today, we're going to go over some of the greatest myths about taxes within the United States and I'm going to share with you what I believe to be is the number one biggest myth that should insult you as a taxpayer, about what you're being told by your politicians. And I'm going to bring this up from a very specific experience from having served and currently serving on the Finance Committee in the Virginia House of Delegates. So I get to be in the trenches with all of this good work. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Last Tuesday, we announced that we were setting a goal to reach 1,000 subscribers on the Making the Argument channel by May 1st. We just passed 700 subscribers, so thank you to everyone that has subscribed. If you haven't already, go to the link in the description of this live stream, hit subscribe, and join us over there because in the future, that'll be the only place where we are posting Making the Argument content. All right. With you, as always, myself. <laughs> host of Making the Army, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, and a little bit of additional information. Again, I do serve on the House Finance Committee. I've served there for six years now, which handles all the tax policy in Virginia. So this is going to be an interesting show So now today. I know who to get mad at. Oh my gosh, I do a lot of voting no. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right, uh, Queen of the Bees is not with us today. She is feeling a little bit under the weather and didn't want to come and make everybody else sick. So we do appreciate that, but we are sad that she is not here also, we have a resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. And possessor of 100 plus internet tabs. And possessor of 100 <laughs> plus internet tabs on, on his computer at all times. And then, of course, we have producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Nick, I, today is tax day, right? Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. I don't okay. know. I, there, I, there was actually a comment from I somebody. To, I refuse to acknowledge it. At the very start of this live stream, <laughs> there was actually a comment from somebody saying, can't we just identify as having already paid that? <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm, I'm trying that. You should definitely give that a shot. Uh, yeah, today we're going to go over we're going to go over a, a number of things. Um, one of the ones I'm really looking forward to, which will come at the end, is as we talk about all of these taxes that you are paying and who's actually paying the taxes and everything else, we are also going to discuss what the government actually spends your tax dollars on. So you'll be able to effectively analyze whether or not you would like to give them even more money to spend. So I'm going to I'm going to read off some things at the end, and you guys get to guess. How much of your tax dollars went to that particular government expenditure? Also, if you have questions, please let us know within the uh, comments section on uh, YouTube, and we'll be able to incorporate those questions as we discuss all of this today. All right, so first things first, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, you know, 
what are the various categories of taxation? So there's there's kind of three broad categories, right? And if you want to go to the Tax Foundation website, they've got it. They've got a, a good overview and kind of primers on this and stuff like that. If you really want to learn more, but here's the three main categories: you have taxes on what you earn, you have taxes on what you buy, and you have taxes on what you own. Now, within those three broad categories. There is a ton of other taxes. Like I was, I was looking this up and this, this part is a, a little bit depressing. If you go and you just ask, what are a list of all the taxes in the United States? It's not like you're going to get a wiki page that just says, oh, okay, here they are. Here, because there's so many and because it varies state to state, locality to locality, the idea of being able to find all that in one easy to find convenient location is just about impossible. But let's let's give some, some ideas here. So taxes on what you earn, that's obvious, right? The most obvious one is the income tax. Now, for everyone that says that taxes are the price we pay for civilization, I just want to remind everyone that civilization in the United States somehow managed to exist for, for well over the first hundred years of our history without a federal income tax. Don't, no, don't you know? You you obviously didn't go to public school because they taught us that it was Mad Max-style anarchy before the, <laughs> the 16th Amendment. I mean, it, it, it it's even crazier than that because, like, income, when we think of taxes, we think of income, yeah. right? But, but as you pointed out, like, in some ways, income is only a, a, a relative, it's a huge portion of the pie, right? But like yeah. when you think about everything else that you pay taxes on, like here in Virginia, for example, we think of tax season as being uh, due in, in May, a month after the federal taxes. But like we have everybody who owns a car pays taxes, yeah. right? We have a, a, a car tax. That's one thing thing that, that well, other and states that's, don't and have. That's what, I mean, again, when you look at all these categories, it's not simple enough to just say, oh, income tax, right? Even though that's income tax, sales taxes, but so the... It, the category of what you earn, that can be income tax, that can be capital gains, that can be payroll taxes, right? Anything that is attached to how much you earn. And what's important to understand is in the United States, right? We always hear this, this line, right? And this is going to be one of the myths we talk about, you know, the, do the rich pay their fair share? And you can, you can do man on the street interviews. You ask people to rich pay their fair share. The answer is always no, right? Because if you're listening to Elizabeth Warren, to Bernie Sanders, it, it all seems like, well, of course they don't pay anything in taxes. Um, but when you when you look at income, income that's individual income. Then you also have capital gains. Capital gains is like if you if you buy a house, like if you have a property, uh, and then you sell that property and you you make money off of it. You now have to pay a tax on the money you made off of that property that you sold. You also have capital gains with respect to selling stocks and things like that. Now it's interesting. A lot of the times they'll come in and say, well, the income tax is this, but the capital gains is, is a lower rate and, and it's capital gains primarily affects rich people. So why are they paying a lower rate? Again, it's, it's like if, if I've already taxed your income and then you take a portion of that income and you invest it and that investment, which I'm, we're all glad you invested, right? Because that creates more jobs, more products, more services. And then you say, okay, I, I now want to cash out my investment. Now we tax you again. Right. So we, we tax you on the money you use to invest and we tax you again if you were successful. And then you have things like payroll taxes and whatnot. A lot of these things go to direct funding of things like Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera. Then there's taxes on what you buy. There's things like the sales tax. That's probably the most obvious. It's the one that most people come into contact with. Um, you also have things like a gross receipts tax. Th this is kind of a complicated one, but essentially like in Virginia, we have taxes that businesses have to pay in certain jurisdictions, not everywhere, in certain jurisdictions where they have to pay taxes on the capital products that they buy. So you're, you're a company, you buy a, you know, some 
machinery or some equipment because you need it for your business. That's the B-pole tax, right? Yeah, you have to pay a tax. You have to pay an additional tax on that piece of equipment, even if you're not turning a profit. So this is it's not even a tax on like the profits of your company. So you're you setting could be up losing a money. You could be losing money and the government is still like, we want our cut on this piece of equipment so, that you so, had so to buy. Let, let, let's say that you wanted to start like a car mechanic business, right? Yeah. You you bought a piece of land, you build a, a shed there, yeah. you bring in some equipment, you get some tire changing stuff. The state, not not the state, the locality is taxing you. This is a question. Yes. The, the, the locality is taxing you before you even flip the sign to open. Yes. So you, you've set, you've set up a company. You're How does not, that not, not disincentivize new it businesses does. being started? <laughs> it does. It does. It punishes. It means that you need a ton of money to start a business because you got to start paying taxes before you even, you even get a customer in the door. Yeah, it's no, it's 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 horrible. It's there's very few states that actually impose this. And in, in Virginia, localities have jurisdiction on whether or not they want to impose it or not, but they do have the authority to. And and it does. It's it's a tax against capital investment, which for anyone paying attention to business, capital investment is generally pretty important to be able to like actually function. Now the the other one too with uh, taxes on stuff that you buy is tariffs. So a tariff is a tax, it's a federal tax on a um, on a product that was purchased like that came from overseas, right? So that's what a tariff is. So every time, again, a lot of times you'll you'll see politicians talking about how we need to protect American business with higher tariffs. What that means is that they're going to tax American consumers, right? That's that's what that's going on. So that's yet again another tax that's being levied. And then finally, there's taxes on your property, right? Most of the things within your your locality come from property taxes. So you buy a house, you have a piece of property, they collect taxes from that in order to pay for things like schools or education or whatever else that they've got to charge. But then on top of that too, you also have, you know, so not only do you have these three broad categories, but you have the federal, the state, and the local level in some cases taxing you along all three of these categories. So it's not like, okay, the feds got the income tax and then the, the locality's got the property tax and the state's got this. No, no, no. All of them are taxing you usually along these three categories. And so you are just getting repeatedly taxed and taxed and taxed with everything that you do. So what do you have to say, Nick, when the response from somebody could be, okay, fair enough, Nick, you know, you have all these taxes, you have all these regressive taxes, yeah. like, like, you know, we have grocery taxes, we yeah. have the B poll tax on machineries. So let's just get rid of those and make the evil, greedy, rich people pay their fair share because they're clearly, yeah. you know, it's the poor working man that, that, <laughs> that is, is forking over all the money. And by the way, poor working men are forking over a ton of money. Let's yeah. just get, oh, get yeah, that. Yeah. That's clear. But, yeah. but the response from, from certain politicians on the left, Elizabeth Warren being probably one of the most prominent ones is, well, yeah, we have a very regressive tax system and the rich simply are not paying their fair share. We need to raise taxes on them. Sure. So, so the, the first thing that we have to look at when we're analyzing this, right? So the, the comment that usually comes from like an Elizabeth Warren is going to be something like, oh, you know, General Dynamics didn't pay any corporate income taxes last year, but they made profits of, you know, however, however many billion or whatnot. And, and a lot of times what they're conflating here is individuals versus companies or, comp or, or corporate entities. So the, the, first, the first myth that we got to kind of throw out here is this idea that an entity pays a tax. Taxes are always and at all times ultimately paid for by individuals. 
That's who. That's even a corporate tax. Yes, and here's why. If I tax your corporation's profits, all right, where would those profits have gone had I not taxed them? Well, they could have gone to investment. They could have gone to salaries. They could have gone to bonuses. They could have gone to infrastructure. They could have gone to more product. At the end of the day, it's an individual that's always affected by that tax. So when when a politician says corporate taxes, that sounds fine because it doesn't sound like you're targeting a particular person. You're just targeting a business entity. And after all, they've got enough money anyways, right? No, you have to remember that a corporation, right? The sign on the building, the LLC, the the, the documentation sitting somewhere that, that forms a, a legal entity, it is not looking to get rich, right? It's the people within that entity that are providing the products, providing the services, doing the work and getting the money. So anytime the government taxes it, right, that's affecting an individual. And it's not just affecting the board members. I see what you're, I, I see yeah. what you're saying. So, no matter what, it, 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 the, the corporation, let, let's say, let's say that we didn't have a corporate tax mm -hmm. at all. That would be extra money that then Coca-Cola or Walmart would be spending on hiring more employees yes. or shareholders or, or, or share buybacks, yeah. which is a way to transfer money to shareholders, individuals of some form. Yeah. Right. And yeah. but then the response from the left would be, yeah, but we have these taxes because we, you know, if, if we didn't, then the rich wouldn't be paying their fair share. And that's where the money is. So here's, here's the, well, the thing is, is the money is the money doesn't sit in a corporation indefinitely. The money sits in a corporation to be spent on things. It, again, can be spent on infrastructure, can be spent on capital projects, can be spent on salaries, can be spent on bonuses. It can be spent on all this stuff unless the government takes it. So it's, it's almost a form of double taxation because I'm still taxing all the members who work within that corporation. And then here's the real question because the, the income tax is the one that is is one of the like sales tax is probably the least avoidable, right? But then you have income tax. Nick, so can let, I, can let's I just ask say something real quick. Yeah. It sounds like to me if I'm trying to start a business yeah. and be a productive member of society, yeah. that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren might be one of my worst enemies. Well, they're definitely not all that friendly toward you. They they kind of see you as a cash cow. And, and not only that, but they, they see you as kind of a, a mean, greedy cash cow because, oh, look, you have all this wealth. In fact, there was a comment Elizabeth Warren made uh, in one of her speeches that I thought was really insightful. You didn't build in, that. Into her. It wasn't that you didn't build that. Here's what she said. She goes, okay, you built a company and, and that company made a, a huge profit. Good for you. But the rest of us paid the taxes for those roads for your product to market. The rest of us paid the taxes for the police to keep it safe. The rest of us paid for the schools in order to give you an educated workforce. Here's the problem with that mentality. Whenever she says that, what does she mean the rest of us? No, all of us paid the taxes on the road. All of us paid the taxes on the schools. All of us paid the taxes for the police force. The difference was... You know that that was an old speech because she wouldn't have included the police force no, part in now. The, the, but the, the, all of us paid for those taxes. The, and all of us theoretically could have said, and I want to set up a business along that road, protected by those police, educated in order to, to get this product to market. I think we're going But gonna... so wait, wait. But somebody did, right? And let me ask you something. Are the people that are shopping that business, do they feel ripped off? Are, are, they, are, the, are the kids that graduated high school or college that now have a job, are, are, are they the ones that have been put out by this? Right? No, nobody has. Everyone's made better by this person engaging in, in commerce, not to mention the fact that not only did that person who started the business pay the same taxes, they paid more. Right. 
because they didn't just pay their individual income taxes like everybody else. They had to pay all kinds of taxes on top of that because they were running a business. So for Elizabeth Warren to say that either demonstrates gross ignorance for how taxes are collected and spent, or she's lying in order to try to whip people up into this frenzy that, yeah, every business owner owes me something. And we're going to learn in just a few minutes why that is such a dishonest statement. So here we go. Let's let's go into let's go into federal income taxes because federal income taxes makes up I think it's something over 40% of, of the total take by the federal government, right? Okay. So it, it is the single largest um, source of revenue from for, for the federal government is federal income taxes. Now, when they go and they ask people, do the rich pay their fair share? The response is almost absolutely not. They don't pay anything or they don't pay. They, it's the working man that pays, pays it. All right. So let's, let's look at this. Half of taxpayers pay 97% of all income taxes. So what they do in order to get this number is they break down the whole population by quintiles, right? So that's okay. five categories. You got the bottom 20, you got the next level up from that middle 20, higher 20, and then the top 20. Okay. Now, what they what they typically do here, just to kind of illustrate this point, is they'll look at the top 1% as well. But here's what you need to understand about this. If you fall in the top half percent or the top half of the population, 129 million households or something like that. Income it, earners, right? Yeah. If you fall in the top half of income earners, you pay 97% of all federal Income the current median household income is just over $70,000. So if your household income is over $70,000, you are in the 97, you're in the, you're in the group Top of people 50%. that pay 97% of all taxes. Now here's what's interesting. Go ahead and go to this next, um, <clears throat> this next one here. So this is what we mean. Now, when we say top 1%, because this is one of the other, so, the, so the, the, one of the myths here, right, is this idea that the rich don't pay their fair share all right. Well, what you need to understand is the top 50% of the country are paying 97% of all the taxes, which means the bottom 50% is paying almost nothing in federal income taxes. Now, we're going to get to another myth associated with this in just a second, right? But they're paying almost nothing like up front. Okay. Now, when the second question people ask is like, well, what do you think is the top 10%? People use, oh, the millionaires. Millionaires are the top 10%. Um, guys, if you make $152,000 a year, you're in the top 10%. The so t- the top 1% of income earners in the United States, this is by this is tax year 2020, make $548,000 a year. So when Elizabeth Warren says the rest of us yeah. paid for these roads, that's actually maybe not true. So it it's the the problem is is that it's incomplete and it's misleading. All of us pay taxes for these things, but the percentage of taxes that you actually pay, like your contribution to that that road mm-hmm. is minuscule next to somebody else. Okay. Next to somebody that's making more money. It's it's minuscule. It's finite. In fact, as we're gonna kind of demonstrate, in some cases it might even be zero. The example that I like to bring up on this is when she's talking about corporations and especially companies that manufacture products and services. Um they pay more in fuel for their trucks. Yes. They pay more taxes on those vehicles. And so in, in my mind, it's that these corporations are actually paying a higher tax for sales for all of that anyway. 
So it, some of this depends on how that, so there's, there's something called user fees, right? And user fees are actually probably the fairest form of taxation. But what's interesting is people like Bernie Sanders, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, they all call them regressive taxes. Now, why do they call them regressive? Well, because poor people have to pay them too. What do they call a progressive tax? They call a progressive tax where the wealthy not only pay more, they pay a higher percentage of their wealth. So that's what they call progressive versus regressive. Now, again, these, these terms I, I think are a little bit misleading. When, when we say, when we use the word fair, we generally think that we all contribute in, in accordance with what we take, not even what we earn. We contribute in accordance with what we take. If, if the three of us went out to dinner right now, and we decided to split the check, but I ordered lobster and you ordered a salad and Christian had water. None of us would think, oh, that, that's a fair distribution yeah. of, of, the, of the bill that we're going to split it three ways evenly. But if I paid for mine, you paid for yours and you paid for yours, we'd all say, oh yeah, that's fair because you paid in proportion to what you consumed. Not, what you not even what our incomes were when we walked in, right? And, and in fact, if restaurants organize themselves the way that, the government taxes us, we wouldn't go to those restaurants. There would be no restaurants in America. No, because you'd go in there and it's like, well, I'm going to have to pay based off of what somebody else orders or because let me I might that. happen to make more. Let me rephrase that. It's not that there would be no restaurants in America. It's that nobody would go in groups. Everybody no. would just eat individually. Yeah. Um, it, so so here's what, the, the point I wanted to get across on this was the, the top 1% is not what people oftentimes imagine it is, right? If you make $548,000 a year, you're, you are making good money. But the other thing to take into consideration not is Not if that you're living in San Francisco. If you're living in Manhattan or San Francisco. <laughs> that's actually not a lot living yeah, in some parts of the country. That's, that's nowhere near. I mean, if you're, living, if you're making $548,000 a year living in New York, you still got a good life. But you ain't living in a mansion. I mean, you're, you're, living was, in a, you're living in a 1,500 square foot apartment. <laughs> th there was actually um, some some news articles that came out. I don't have them pulled up, but there were some news articles that came out over the past couple of weeks that that made the case that somebody making $300,000 in San Jose or New York City, San Jose is Silicon Valley, right? $300,000 in San Jose or New York City is the equivalent of $100,000 in Houston. Yeah. And when you take all federal taxes, state taxes, local taxes, and then the general cost of living into account, it is it is the equivalent. So when you look at this, something like two, like I have a cousin, for example, that works for Microsoft, and he makes about two hundred thousand a year. He has arguably a lower quality of life than somebody that's making seventy or eighty thousand living in in rural Tennessee. Yeah. Um, because of the immense cost of living that comes, plus the tax burden that comes from living in San Jose. Um, so the, these tables don't even take into account the, the relative cost of living differences in certain parts of the country. But what I find so, so incredible is that, like you said, that, you know, with, with if you're in the, the top 50%, which is not a huge number, right? Yeah. Just, just in the in half of the population, you're effectively paying almost 100% of all federal taxes. Inco well, federal income taxes. Federal income yeah. taxes. That is I mean, that just completely destroys the myth that the rich don't pay their sh fair share. First off, it's not even the rich. The middle class well, is the, also paying more than their fair the, share. The other, Yes, they are. And the other thing that's important to remember here is that if we, if we look at this graph here, one of the things that's important is that some people say, oh, okay, well, sure, the, the, the top 10%, um, you know, maybe they pay a lot more in taxes, but it's because they control the wealth and they don't actually pay the... the percentage 
um, based off of the wealth they actually control within the country. It's like, well, okay, there's two problems with that reasoning. The first problem is, is how did they get that wealth in the first place? If they got the wealth, because a lot of times these conversations start with this idea that there's wealth and then it's all a question of how do we distribute it? How do we split up the No, what, what there were was resources and time and talent and effort and work. And then wealth was created as a result of doing that. And the people that are really good at creating that wealth, especially in, in our sort of market system, where the only way that they get, or, or typically the way that they get wealthy is by providing you, the customer, something you want. Why would you want to punish that or demonize that? You want them to continue to do that. They're using scarce resources effectively. But so right off the bat, there's, there's kind of a, a tone problem we're talking about it that way. It's not an accurate reflection of what's going on, right? Resources are just there until a human mind comes in and actually makes them, you know, a valuable product. But then if you actually look at it, so the top 1%, the gross the adjusted gross income share. So like what do they own of the economy? 22%. Now some people look at that and be like, "Well, that's horrible." All right, well, I don't know what you think would be more appropriate. Would it be more appropriate if it was 15? They'd say would 1%. Yeah, you know, what is it? But their share of federal personal income tax is 42. So they're, they're paying almost double over the wealth that they actually possess. Now you go down to the bottom 50, their gross, their adjusted gross share of income is 10%, the bottom 50%. Now people get hung up on the whole idea of like the top 1% have 22% of the wealth and the bottom 50% have 10% of the wealth. Oh my gosh. Okay. But what's their share of the federal income tax paid? It's almost nothing. It's almost nothing. It's two. And, and, and again, so, so right off the bat, the myth, there's a couple of different myths that we've just destroyed here. One is when they talk about the 1%, we're talking about billionaires. No, we're not. In fact, when we're talking about the 1%, if, if you're, you know, making that kind of money in New York city, you're, you're comfortable, but you ain't living in a mansion. You don't got a yacht, right? That ain't, that is, that is not a thing. So that's the first one is that the 1% isn't what a lot of times people think it is. The second one is, is that, well, even if they do pay more, like even if we get them to concede that, yes, they are paying the majority of the taxes, that's only fair because they're paying the taxes in proportion to the amount of wealth they control. No, they're not. They're paying up and above, well over. So, so the idea, the myth here, and as you can see, this, this kind of goes top 1% and, uh, you know, pay almost twice in taxes based off of the wealth they actually control. Top 5%, not quite twice, per, uh, twice, but it's it's up there. Um, it's really once you start to get it out of the top 25%, the top 50%, now you're talking a lot closer margin between the amount of wealth that they control versus the I'm percentage like, yeah. that they pay in taxes. And then once you get to the bottom 50, it's, it's a complete flip. Yeah. It's a complete I, flip. Nick, I'm not understanding the difference between the top 50% and bottom 50% and the difference in those numbers. What do you mean the difference in the numbers? So, so what Nick is trying to say is that the amount of wealth that you control versus the amount of taxes that you pay, yeah. that ratio okay. is extremely lopsided in different ways yeah. on both extreme ends of the spectrum. Whereas when you get into the middle around the top 50%, the median, it's mm -hmm. almost about equal. But it, what, 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 he, what this is indicating is that we have an extremely progressive tax system. Okay. So this actually completely destroys the myth that the rich don't pay their fair share in taxes. They're they're paying just the top 1% alone is paying over 40% of all federal income taxes. 1% of the population paying over 40% of all federal income tax. None of us are in the top 1%. Right. And 
I, so, so you know, I, I think, Nick, you feel free to correct me, obviously. I, I think that what you're trying to get across is that when you just dig into the numbers, mm-hmm. none of this is partisan spin or anything. This is all publicly available information. Well, and, when and, you just dig into the numbers, it, it's obvious that, that the, the, the lines that people like, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren parrot are complete falsehoods. It's it's not even like, oh, well, it's just about how you look at the information. No, it's a complete lie. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And we, and we saw this with some other organizations that came out with data too that were pushing this narrative. And, and the thing is, is that it's not that the, I mean, again, if you're upper middle class, you're also paying a lot in taxes. Um, and, and so the, the important thing is the reason why, because it's easy for someone to look at this and say, Oh, 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 I guess, oh, the poor rich people, I guess they don't get an extra yacht. That's not what we're talking about. If, if you want to tax wealthier people at a higher rate, okay, I, I would, I'm going to question whether or not I think that's a, a good move, but you don't get to say, I'm going to tax them at a higher rate because they're not paying anything when they're paying most of it. You're not going to tell me that somebody making $150,000 a year needs to get taxed at an even higher rate because they're not paying their fair share when it's clear that they're they're paying like all the share. All the share of federal income taxes being paid by these by this group of people and you want to pretend that they're not doing anything so you can whip people up into a political frenzy in order to tax them more. That's that's intellectually, you know, it's a lie and and morally it ca- and morally it causes real problems because the more progressive your tax system gets the more you create a scenario and by the way both republicans and democrats have been guilty of this i'm not like but the more progressive progressive your system gets you also get to a point where one half of the population is paying the taxes and the other half is just receiving benefits oh and in a political structure where you that's, select your leaders according dangerous. to democratic processes, what happens when you get to 51% of the population paying zero taxes but getting benefits? What is their incentive to to tell the government, hey, chill out a little bit? What's their incentive? That's dangerous. So here's we're gonna, what we, we're going to be... I think ahead. that we're going to get to that later in this episode, actually, about those implications. I actually have a question yeah. um, from a... Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna call him a troll, but a, a, a left wing guy in the um, in, in one of our chats yeah. that I think is is just a great segue into the next segment that I know that we want to get into in this yeah. episode. He says both corporations and individuals need to pay more in taxes. The top tax rate used to be ninety percent. <laughs> now it's thirty six. Ridiculous! Stop believing this ignorance. Okay. What are your response? Let's What's your response? Go ahead to that? and look at that. The country was more prosperous in the 1950s, and we had a top marginal tax bracket of 90 percent. Okay. Well, let's analyze that. Go ahead and bring up. You know, this is. You, you know, almost couldn't ask we, for a better you know, question. It's amazing because we have the article ready to go, and it's not like we had this question ahead of time. We just knew it would yeah, come for, up. For, for the audience that's tuning in live and for those that are going to be watching um, or listening later after we're, we're, we're done live, that was not a paid actor. Nope. <laughs> no paid actor there for that. All right, so here we go. We got this article from learnliberty.org. Uh, and it's uh, the the section that we're looking at is the myth of taxing the taxing the rich in the 1950s because this is such a common misconception that you know the 50s were just this wonderful time of economic development within the United States and everybody had a job and they could live off of a single income and and the the top marginal tax break was 90 percent so so clearly that's the reason why we were wealthy right is because we were taxing rich people at 90 percent okay. <laughs> Let me read the let me read this excerpt. The 1950s, 
that was the great. Okay, now you may be thinking, but wait a minute. The 1950s was the greatest economic era ever. That's when everybody had a job. Those jobs were for life. People got to live in suburbia and go on vacation and do all sorts of amazing things. It was post-war prosperity, right? Actually, all of those things are myths. In the 1950s, the United States suffered four recessions. One started in 1949, then in 1953, then in 1957, and then coming out of the 50s in 1960. Four recessions in 11 years. The rate of structural unemployment kept going up all the way to 8% in the severe recession of 1957 and 1958. The bottom line is, is the same people on the left that, that talk about us you know, conservatives glorifying the 50s because you know mom stayed at home and dad worked and the whole deal. Then want to come back and say, oh, but it was it was great for tax purposes because look how great the economy was. Well, no, four recessions in 11 years is is not a good measurement by any stretch of the imagination. Now, here's what you do need. Here's what you do need to do to compare it. Like, why do people have this image of the 1950s? Well, one family structure was reasonably strong. But can we also talk about what was going on right before the 1950s? The worst economic downturn in U.S. history combined by the bloodiest war in world history, and then you went into the 50s. So you went from, you went from like FDR screwed this up so bad that we're actually burning, you know, produce and killing livestock at the same time that Americans are going hungry. Then we go into a massive world war where we sustained 400,000, you know, Americans killed in combat. Then you go into the 1950s and two things are taking place during that time. One, we're no longer involved in a major land war except for the early part of the uh, 50s during the Korean War. You got the Cold War going on, but by the same token, United States, the United States was the only country that didn't have their industry completely destroyed during World War II. So international competition was nowhere near what it would become later on and in going into the 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. So essentially, you have this perfect storm where the, the United States is the only major industrial power that didn't just have their entire industrial base obliterated. Um, we were we were at, with, briefly around this time period. We were briefly a majority of the world, a majority yeah. of the world's GDP. Yeah, one wh country, wh which us. is insane majority. to think about. That's, that's we were not 100. a majority of the population. No. So, so it's important to understand that there was there was a there was a number of factors that were impacting what was going on at the time. But the problem was is, is that Eisenhower kept a lot of these marginal tax rates very high. So what did a what did a 90% marginal tax rate look like in the US? Well, one, the the tax code at that time I think was something like 11,000 pages long. And like page 1 talked about the the structure of the tax, page 2 talked about, you know, who was responsible for paying what based off of your income bracket, and then page and then all the other pages were exceptions to the rule. So nobody was effectively paying that because what it meant was is that in 1950, if you made $200,000 a year, anything you made over 200000 got taxed at a 90% rate. So here's the question. Why would you work harder? Why would you invest more? Why would you create more business? Why would you, why would you do any of that stuff? Because the moment you get over $200,000, every dollar you make after $200,000, 90 cents of it goes to the government. Oh, except for people like media moguls in Hollywood that gave themselves special exceptions that were written into legislation. I was going to say, almost nobody actually paid that 90% rate. So here, here we go. Taking advantage of a complicated tax code. I'm going to read a little bit more of this article. So there wasn't significant economic growth in the 1950s. It only averaged 2.5% during the presidency of Eisenhower, and the tax code spawned inequality that is even unheard of today. 
How so? Well, when you have a marginal rate of the income tax that is 91%, to have an exception from that income tax is very valuable. If you were able to get a statute written into the tax code that says you don't have to pay that 91% and your high income, you could either pay nothing or pay much lower rate. That exemption is very valuable. The tax code in the 1950s was 11,000 pages. Here we go. The first two pages of the tax code were very simple things. The opening line of the tax code said that income tax is taxable from any and all sources derived. Okay. Okay, if you make income, it's taxable. And then the second two pages of the tax code with a list of the rates, the dates, blah, blah, blah. And then the next 11,000 pages after those first two were exceptions to those statements. They were pet <laughs> statutes that were written into law by Congress at the behest of lobbyists that said this income is not subject to taxation. And always, in almost every case, it had to do with the income of the rich. And then he gives some examples. Um, but the interesting part about this is that they they keep looking back at the 1950s as hey we were we were wealthy at this time because we taxed the rich more when in reality if you look at what was actually going on economic development stagnated below what it actually could have been because we had an enormous economic advantage at that time combined with the fact that it was the richest cronies that actually were able to write exceptions to their their income or the mechanisms in which they got paid in order to avoid taxation. Uh, that's cronyism is what that oh, is. Oh, big time. Like, I, I'm not sitting here like, yay for the... What I mean, I think what all of us at this table want is that to the extent that we're going to have to pay taxes, I, I want it to be low. I want it to be, you know, fair in the sense that you're, you're not punishing me for success or rewarding me for failure. So that that's the answer to that question is that one, the 1950s was not the economic boon that you think it was based off of the standards that were going on at the time. Two, the tax code didn't do what you think it did. you know. And, and three, the other thing that I would also mention here is in the 1950s, we actually were still on the gold standard or some version of the gold standard. So the federal government- Your wealth just was not being destroyed off, by inflation. Yeah, by inflation to the degree that it is now. So I, I, I've got another question from the audience that is is somewhat related to this, this myth. And I've heard this myth so often with like yeah. the 1950s. Um, was there any form of like, like double taxation because I, one of the questions that or versus today because like one of the questions that we got from the audience was can you explain double taxation and in yeah. your opinion are we currently being double taxed yes if yes what can we do about that yeah. so no you're you're absolutely being double taxed when you think about it in in these terms it kind of depends on where you are within the economy so if you're let's just say you you show up you work at a you work at a job you are getting tax on your income you're also getting the payroll payroll tax right that's going to social security you're also getting FICA taxes which are going to you know or, or other taxes which are going to like Medicaid Medicare mm -hmm. um, then when you spend that dollar right so you you've paid all the taxes just to get the dollar now you go out and you spend the dollar well it gets taxed again on the sales tax right? You bought your home. You own the home. Well, you're getting taxed again on the property tax for actually owning the home. In some states, you get taxed on a car that you buy. And, and some, you go out to dinner. Okay. Well, like in Virginia, you, you went out to dinner downtown. Oh, okay. Now you're getting the meals tax. Okay. And, and you decided to take your, you decided to take your spouse out for a special getaway. Oh, well now you're getting the transit occupancy tax within the hotel on top of the sales tax that you're already paying for also using the hotel. So you, you didn't even you mention getting, investing, right? Leading yeah. into capital gains and taxes on dividends yeah. because the dollar, this is something that I learned myself this year yeah. is, is that that, you know, the dollar that you're getting paid, first off, it's getting taxed. And then you take that dollar and then you you invest it in the stock market and then it appreciates and then you take it out and then you get taxed again. And by the way, we're going to get into a wealth tax, which is oh effectively a tax on, 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 on 
unrealized gains, yeah. which would completely destroy the yeah. economy. Oh, we're yeah. we're going to get into that later in this episode. But that's one thing. And then there's finally dividend taxes, which even if you don't pull it out, if you just get paid by, let's say that you, you bought a share of Microsoft and they pay a dividend, you get taxed on that as well yep. from the money that you invested that you were previously taxed on. So it's not even double taxation. It's more like triple and in some yeah. cases, quadruple taxation. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the important thing to understand is that you are getting taxed multiple times in multiple different ways, some ways you're not even aware of. Because we've just gotten so used to handing over the money and realizing that the rate we're going to pay for the hotel room or the meal or the toy or the whatever it is, it's going to be higher than advertised because of all the additional taxes. But one thing that's interesting, every once in a while, take a look because some receipts will actually list out all of the additional taxes that you're paying. My accountant asked me why I didn't do quarterly payments for my taxes. Yeah. I told him that I like to feel the pain all at once so that I, so that, so that I can just really grasp the, the, the situation. Yeah. You know, this is why there's a common proposal that conservatives have that I would support in a heartbeat yeah. to move tax day to the day before election. Day. Oh yeah. I think it's a great idea, but I think it is a phenomenal idea, but Nick, it hasn't just been folks like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren that have helped initiate all of these taxes. Yeah. What, what role have Republicans played in? So re Republicans, whenever they try to reduce taxes, there's this feeling like, so, it, and here's here's one of the things that we get. I'm going to give a, a specific example yeah. of this. This will actually lead to one of what I think is the most insulting myth. I, before um, you get to that, I've got one more question for this this segment. Okay, go ahead. So, well, I, no, I was going to let you finish, but I just wanted to let you know that there's one more. Well, I don't want to get up on a whole to, other story. Okay, I'll, I'll ask it right now. And then, it's a and, good and then story, we'll Christian. <laughs> so, um. I had a question, and, and the reason I wanted to bring it up in this segment is because it's obvious that the tax code in the 1950s was extremely progressive, yeah. so much so that it actually hurt economic growth, yeah. and it created a bunch of cronyism because people were were, were lobbying for carve-outs. Yeah. Well, I had um, there was one audience member that asked, could you explain the difference between a flat tax, which is obviously not what they had, yeah. and a fair tax? Yes. And I, I actually, I've heard these, I know what a flat tax is, but I actually, I don't think I actually know what did, a fair tax is. Did that question come from Caleb? I, I believe it did. I didn't okay. copy the name. So there's, there's kind of three, there's three tax structures that they get spoken about a lot, right? The one we have is progressive, which means you don't just get taxed more if you, if you make more, you get taxed at a higher percentage right? That's a progressive tax. Like okay. your, your tax okay. burden goes up significantly and by percentage for once you go into higher brackets, a, a flat tax, the rich still pay more because 10% on $10,000 is a lot less than 10% on a million dollars. All right. So that's a flat tax. A flat tax just says the percentage is this. I don't care how much you make a fair tax is more like a, a uh, it's described as kind of like a national sales tax. Now, what's interesting is that even with a, in that system of taxation, the wealthy pay a much higher tax because, not because they're taxed differently, because now I'm not even being taxed at the same percentage. The reason why we call it fair is because I'm not taxing you because you make more, right? In, in the other two, yeah. the progressive... I'm not only taxing you because you make more, but I'm up in your percentage. Yeah. Flat tax, I'm still taxing you as you make more money, right? I'm taxing you more even though you don't necessarily pull out more. The fair tax basically says, okay, if you go and you buy something, 
you're going to pay whatever the tax is on that. Well, if you're a wealthy person, are you probably going to buy more than a poor person? Oh, yeah. So is your, your business is, your corporation is, your share of, of what you're going to pay in overall tax is probably going to be higher? Yes. Now, here's the other reason why it's called fair, and this is important. It's not just called fair because it doesn't punish you for success. Mm. And that's an important thing to understand here about all these incentive structures that are being created. To the extent, because you, you'll have, like, if you're, if you're a libertarian, you're like, hey, taxation is theft, you're using coercion, I didn't sign the social contract, you know, the contract, blah, blah, you know, wh whatever it is. Yeah. Like, I understand that philosophical argument, I really do. But to the extent that you're going to pay taxes, the question is, is, okay, what are you paying taxes for? All right, well, the government right now, if you talk to, like, Adam Smith, who's dead, so if you're talking to him, kudos. But if you talk to Adam Smith, Adam Smith said that basically the government's there to provide for internal security, external uh, you know, security from internal threats, security from external threats, and to some degree infrastructure. So you have a criminal justice system, you have a military, and you have roads, right? That's what Adam Smith thought were, were easy. Now you can debate some of that, but that was the, the basic concept. So if you're, if you're doing a sales tax, the idea is, is the reason why it's fair is because the mechanisms which allow for a marketplace to flourish rely on things like communication yeah. and security. Mm. Well, okay, well, what contributes to communication and security? Well, the, the argument from the government perspective is roads, railroads, waterways, ports, these all facilitate trade and, and movement and commerce. And then a legal system which will protect you, both your physical property and will actually provide for a peaceful way to adjudicate differences. So that if, if you know, you steal from me, my, my response isn't to go to your home and, and like with a gun and get it back, right? We, there's, a, there's a mechanism where, right, not necessarily peaceful, but an ordered mechanism uh, that, that actually adjudicates if only differences. The, if only the IRS would, you know, not come to our door and well, knock so, it down if we don't pay taxes. So the idea is, let me just finish this okay, thought, yeah. right? Because so, I want to answer the question. I keep getting told I interrupt myself. <laughs> So the idea is, is that, all right, if I got in my car, I drove my road to use a store because those services are being provided by the government, then it makes sense for me to pay a tax on this exchange right. because that is, that is the most directly related. The, t the tax now is being assessed at the point where it's most directly related to the government services that I enjoyed in order to get it. That's the argument. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Not saying I agree with all aspects. No, of no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. following. Yeah. I've got some other questions, but I, I, I want us to, to move to the next segment because I know that, that we were already at the can, end. Of can it. I make a quick comment yeah, on the ahead. fair tax? I believe that the fair tax is the most moral system of taxation because it does not require coercion. Well, it does. All taxes I, require coercion. Okay. Great point. But I also <laughs> get to make the choice yes. whether I am going to participate in that coercion. The fair tax is the only system where theoretically you could live in a world where you where you paid no taxes, which is to say that once I purchased my property, once I have if I set up my homestead and I'm completely self-sufficient, I don't pay taxes and I genuinely own the things that I have. And now trade only takes, and I can still barter and things like that. But the moment I'm, I'm actually using, making use of the services that cer certain services the government has provided in order to um, in increase my ability to engage in commerce, now there's a fee that's paid for that. So user fees, I think, are the fairest form. But it, it, again, they're also the kind that the left will describe as regressive. And, and the only, you got to keep this in mind, the only reason why they describe it as regressive is because everyone has to pay it. Mm. But 
But again, the way that we describe fairness in every other financial transaction is I'm responsible for paying for what I consume. Right. A user fee is paying for what you consume. In every area of the marketplace, that is how things operate. Yes. Except Except the government. Except when the government says we must take your money to spend it on whatever, which we're going to get to in just a moment. All right. Okay. So- I, I got to get to the story. Uh, all right, point. go 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 ahead and and, and okay. say it. So we got another article I want to bring up here. Uh, I think it's the go to the summary one. Uh, the no 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 back over one more over. There we go. That okay. one. Okay, that one. Keep it right there. So we were having an argument on. Is this in the legislature? Yes, lowering the tax burden uh, in Virginia, cutting taxes. And we were being told, as we're always told, whenever we want to cut taxes, this is a tax cut for the rich, not a tax cut for the people that need it most. Now, keep in mind, the, the lowest tax bracket in Virginia is like $18,000 where you're paying some... Almost uh, everybody. Yeah, so everybody in paying, Virginia is paying some form of, of state income tax, provided you have an well, income. Well, almost everybody in Virginia is paying the top income bracket yeah, yeah. in taxes, which is yeah, over it's like 5%. 82%. Like the tax cut was going was gonna to positively impact 82% because we were, we were lowering taxes. So... The response from our colleagues on the left was, this is a tax cut for the rich. We're like, all right, so 82% of the population of Virginia is rich now? Is that what you're really... And then it was, well, they don't need the tax cut. First of all, I always find that kind of insulting. How do you know what somebody else needs? And not to mention when when you're talking about somebody else's property, right? Like they worked, they earned this, you're taking it from them. They're saying, I would like to have a small percentage of that back. And you're they're like, asking the representatives to they, do that. And the politicians are like, you don't need it. Uh, pardon me? First of all, it doesn't matter if I need it or not. It's mine. You took it. I want to keep more of it, right? In fact, maybe I wouldn't need so much help from my politician if you weren't taking so much from me in the first place. But- what they did is they got up and they showed their, their cute little graphs, right? Here's my cute little graph, which shows that if you lower this tax, most of the money is going to go to people making whatever, $70,000 and above. Okay. Logically, this makes sense because if you're paying almost nothing in taxes, how can I give you back money you didn't pay? Right? Like, please, please grasp this because this is, this is essential. I can't give a tax cut to someone who isn't paying taxes or who is not paying much in taxes. If you paid $100 in taxes and you got $5 back, it's because you didn't pay that much in taxes. If you paid $50,000 and you got $5,000 back, yes, this person got $5,000 and this person got five, and you could argue that, well, this person could use the $5,000 more. Yes, but this is a tax cut, not government spending. This is a tax cut, not redistribution of wealth. So if you're telling me that we need to t- cut taxes for people that are not paying the tax you are cutting, that isn't a tax cut. It's more government spending. It's more redistribution. It's more redistribution of wealth. It's more redistribution. That is the first thing to understand. Now, that, now that'll get us into eventually myth three, right? Yeah. Because there, there, there's people on the left that that openly say, well, yeah, and and the entire reason we have the tax code the way that it is is because we want this more equitable redistribution of wealth. Yeah, but but here's here's the part that's in here's the part that is so dishonest. So let me go through this argument. We've already established that's not a tax cut, that's government spending at that mm-hmm. point. I can't cut your taxes if you're not paying them. 
what they are doing is they're getting up there with their chart and they're showing, oh my gosh, how unfair is this that this person is getting taxed? You know, you're cutting taxes for all these people, but this person gets more back than this person. Yeah. And this person really needs it. So what we should do is cut their taxes even more. When you look at this, I have this up again. This comes from taxfoundation.org. And, and this is the part that I, I think is, is really important to understand. The way that this works is it's not just that you have your income, all right? If you're in the bottom 50%, you are paying less in taxes than you're actually getting in overall benefits. Repeat that one more time. If you're in the bottom 50%, in most cases, you are getting more in government benefits than you're actually paying in taxes. This could be everything from things like EBT cards. This could be like subsidized housing. This could be subsidized daycare. This could be free and reduced uh, lunches for kids at school. This could be um, uh, free medical service. Like there's all these various things that you are getting access to and that costs more than what you're actually paying. That's called a redistribution. That's a transfer payment. A transfer payment is where you make it, I take it, and I give it to this person over here because they have less. Why is it named transfer payment? Because I'm transferring it from you to you. Uh, okay, that's pr- that was pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> it's just for you to you. When I take that money from you and I give it to this person over here, that is not reflected on their income. Oh. So here is the most insulting portion of this, is that my colleague was standing up there on the floor talking about we need to help out this person by cutting their taxes because look, their income is only at this much. And so they feel this, they feel this tax more than the wealthy person over here. But when she's showing their income, she's not showing all of the additional money that was given to them by the people that have been taxed. So their income jumps up sometimes by a third or more because of those transfer payments. And yet, when the government calculates this data and when politicians use this data, they don't include that in the income of the people that are receiving it. So you are paying a portion of their income, which doesn't get recorded. So even if you pay a higher, so let's say they win the argument. They win. We lower the taxes for everybody, but their taxes lower even more. Plus, they get more redistribution payments. It doesn't actually show up in their overall income that they've received. So they can come back the next year with the exact same chart and say, you're still not paying your fair share. How intellectually dishonest is it to say that the only way that we're going to help the poor is if we take from you and give it to them. And then when I take from you and I give it to them, you get no credit for it in the way that I tabulate the data. So that they can keep coming back and making the same argument year after year after year. And you're sitting there left wondering like, wait a second, I I am paying all my taxes. I'm I'm doing all this. Like, why isn't it working? It's because they want the problem more than they want the actual solution here. And it's a lot harder to convince you to pay more taxes to help the poor. If you get to come back and start asking really serious and probing questions about how that money's being spent. So keep that in mind. It's, it's not just that it's a lie in the sense that I can't cut taxes for somebody that's not paying taxes, right? That should, that's the most obvious response. 
It's that even when I do pay the additional taxes and even when they do give them to the person that, that they claim needs it more, they don't come back later and say, okay, now we're going to include this in their income so that we can show how they've been brought up as a result of you paying more taxes. Nope. They keep that low and then they tell you you're, you're greedy and mean because you want to keep more of what you earn. So politicians tell us that they want to help the poor, but they don't feel that they're doing enough. So instead of making a better case for why uh, the rich should be taxed more or whatever it might be, they then go behind our backs and don't give us all the data so that they can help the poor more. Is that, would you say that's accurate? The, I, I would say that I think it's questionable, and this is when we'll get, we'll get to this next point. I would say it's questionable that it's about helping the poor. Oh, really? Now, now again, do I believe Do I believe that every progressive out there that advocates for this sort of tax policies doesn't want to help the poor? No, I, I believe that a lot of them genuinely do. The problem that I have is that if you genuinely believe that this is the solution to helping the poor, then why aren't you advertising how great all of your programs have worked? <laughs> why, why aren't you arguing about how, oh, this is wonderful. Look at all the success we've had. No, instead yeah. it's every year they come back and say, we need more money. Yeah, we need wh more funding. Why wouldn't you at least go back to these people that are paying all of the taxes in order to make your system, make your programs function. Why wouldn't you ever come back and be like, Hey, we just want to let you know these programs have worked so well. And we want to thank you for all of those contributions that you've made to make these programs possible. There's a reason that you'll never hear socialist compliment Chick-fil-A's drive-through. No, no. And, <laughs> but, but let me, but let me ask you this. If you're someone that is absolutely in a poverty trap, and right now with a lot of these government programs, that's exactly what they are. They're a trap because we punish you the moment you work your way out of them. You are an incredibly loyal, a, a voter that believes their housing, their healthcare, their education, their food, their like everything is absolutely dependent upon these government programs that their representative helps control. Is that a person that's showing up that's free to vote otherwise? Technically, yes. Legally, yes. But if you're living in that kind of fear that, if, my gosh, if I lose this program, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Well, then that is a very, very dependent. This is why the voter. Democrats coalition has become a top bottom coalition. It used to be decades ago that both parties basically had an equal distribution of everybody across all income brackets um, and, 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 and that Republicans were, were, were labeled the party of the rich because they had slightly more richer um, uh, constituencies than Democrats, but that's not really the case at all anymore. Democrats are now, it's almost like a feudal structure, right? Where it's like the Democrat party base consists of ultra wealthy progressives, which I believe we might get into, um, later in this episode. And then those that are, are, are requiring transfer payments in order to, to sustain their standard of living. And both of those groups are very, very loyal to the democratic party. Whereas the middle and both the lower middle and the upper middle tends to be more Republican. But one question that I've got. Well, let me, let me read. I, I, Cause I actually, I wanted to put up. Okay. The, okay. The, go the go ahead. Article. Okay. Here's the key findings. When you actually look at this, America's lowest income families receive $5 and 28 cents worth of government spending for every $1 they pay in total taxes. Yeah. So that's so, the transfer payment. in there. that's a transfer payment. So what you need to understand is that for every, for every $1, they're quote, paying in taxes, they're getting $5.28 back in transfer payments. Oh, wow. Yeah. Middle-income families receive $1.48 in total spending for every tax dollar. So even middle-income, in, in many cases, are receiving more 
then they're actually paying into the total taxes. And then America's highest income families receive 25 cents in spending for every dollar paid in taxes. Wow. So, so 75 cents of what they've done is just gone and 25% comes back. As a group, the bottom 60% of American families receive more back in total government spending than they pay in total taxes. So over half of the American population is basically getting indirectly paid by the federal government. Yes. How is that sustainable? Well, it, it's it's not, uh, <laughs> is, the, is the short answer. And, and then, so yeah, that, that's an important thing. And then government tax and spending policies combined to redistribute more than $2 trillion from the top 40% of families. And again, top 40%, you're making, like just, you're making right around $100,000 or more to the bottom 60%. $2 trillion. So when Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or AOC talk about how this is all about the rich getting richer and the poor being left in the dirt and everything, $2 trillion gets redistributed regularly from the 40, top 40% to the bottom 60%. Now, if you want to argue that it should be $3 trillion, go ahead and make that argument. But don't you dare. Don't you dare tell people that we're not doing anything or we don't care. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm not in the top 1%. I'm not in the top 5%. And I'm a little bit tired of being told every time the government wants more of my money that if I don't want to give it to them, You're I'm greedy. greedy, especially when statistics have shown over and over and over and over again that conservatives are far more likely to give a higher percentage of their income to charitable giving than progressives. It was Thomas Sowell who I believe once said something along the lines of, why is it greed to wish to keep what you have already earned, and yet it's exalted as, as noble and virtuous to covet what someone else has earned? Yeah. Oh, and then not only covet it, but actually go out and find politicians who will coercively take it from them and then punish. You know, again, it's it, Thomas Sowell also said that, you know, when a thief steals from you, they don't go back and, and insist that you thank them for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, but when the, when the government does it, we're we're all being told that we should not only should we feel grateful that they did it, but we should feel bad that they didn't take more. And then and then we rename roads and bridges and post offices after yeah. those politicians when they retire from office. Yeah. But um, I, I th th there's a couple more points that I know that you wanted to bring up in this episode, and there's also some questions that the yeah, audience has sent as let's well. Do, so some questions. Um, I've got a question that I think could actually lead into your third myth that you um okay. th that you've outlined for us which is about taxing for, for um, you know, redistributing wealth in order to create a more equitable society. Yeah. So this is actually somewhat of a difficult question. Um, somebody asked, my question is, corporations like Walmart often pay an unlivable wage to their full-time employees, make products overseas, and then pay minimal taxes. How should we handle taxes for them? That's a, that's a somewhat difficult question because sure. on one hand, the left – has, has a reason to be upset at this, but you also on the right, you have a lot of people on the right that rail against corporations that ship jobs overseas. Yeah, and yeah. so, so you kind of have a politician can easily get elected. The way that I can see it is that a politician can easily get elected by, by kind of whipping the populist frenzy yeah. and, and then directing it at these corporations that are taking our money, shipping jobs overseas, and they're not paying any taxes. That's not fair. We need a more equitable tax yeah. system in order to tax the rich or tax the corporations. Like, like what's your response to that? So it's, it's a great question. And, and a lot of people do look at that and see like, there just seems something fishy about that. How is it that Walmart's not paying anything in tax? Well, first of all, they are paying taxes, right? But the other thing to keep in mind here is that let's say that Walmart, the corporation was paying zero taxes. Can I just say something right now? You know what my response to that would be? Good. Agreed. It would be good. I would say good. And here's why. 
Because Walmart is a legal entity. It doesn't want, the legal entity of Walmart doesn't want any money. You know who wants money? The people that work at Walmart, the people on the board of directors at Walmart, the shareholders of Walmart. They're the ones that want the money. And the thing is, is that all of those people are already getting taxed for their income, for their sales, for their property, for their capital gains, for their debt. They're all getting taxed already, all of them. All of the wealth that Walmart generates by employing people, by selling products, by, you know, all of it, they're getting taxed on all of it. Why do you want to tax them again as a corporate entity? Why? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that's the first thing to understand is that we need to get past the narrative that, that politicians are trying to condition us to believe, which is if a company makes money and, the, and the, it's in the company account, we need to tax that on top of all the other things that we've already taxed associated with that company. We don't need one more tax on productivity because that's what this is. We're taxing productivity. You did a good job. You made money. Well, we want some. We already got some. We want more. That doesn't make sense. I'm right. there, there's no moral obligation. Uh, in my mind, for the corporate entity to pay more taxes when all the people that work for the corporate entity are already paying all of these taxes. Second question, they get products overseas. Okay, this, this, is, a, this is a larger trade argument, but here, here's what I would say. The idea behind being frustrated about products being created overseas and being sold in the United States is that if they weren't being created overseas, then they would be created in the United States. And wouldn't that create more jobs and wouldn't that create more wealth and prosperity? My answer to that is no, not necessarily. And, and the reason why is because of things like competitive advantage. Like, so for instance, let's, let's bring that logic all the way back to a local version of this. Do you, do you shop in American companies that work outside of your county? or work outside of your state or work at, well, gosh, why do you do that? Don't, don't you love your locality more than you love Chicago or, or even better? You mean, you mean you allow someone else to, don't you love your family? Do you realize that if you didn't do shopping with anybody else, your family would have full-time jobs for the rest of their life, growing their own food and making their own clothes. I know where this is building going. Their own car. No trade. There was wait, this. Wait a second. Okay. I'll, I'll let you finish. Yeah. Let me, let me answer the question. Trade is good for us. We voluntarily engage in trade. The reason why Walmart is buying those products is because their customers want them. Walmart didn't decide one day, ooh, I know. Yeah. Let's do this. Walmart said, if I can sell you this and, and you buy it and, and the, the price is cheaper, then you're going to shop with me. And the reason why you're going to shop with me is because you don't want to pay a dollar extra for a hammer that isn't necessarily better because of the location in which it was built. Most people don't, or a lot of people, especially poorer people, they can't afford to make that kind of decision. Like, have I purchased things that were a little bit more expensive because I really liked the business owner I was doing business with, or I liked the local shop, or I liked the atmosphere? Yes, because I can afford to. But there were other times in my life where when that product was a dollar more, I couldn't get it, but I could get it at Walmart. Yeah. So was, so was that... So were we were we punishing the poor by creating a situation where they can get greater access to goods and services at lower prices? I think did your mic did your mic get oh yeah that's what happened just plug it back <laughs> in. Mic <laughs> I um while Nick ahead, works on while Nick works on fixing his mic, I have a point that I want to bring up of where um where right, Nick was going with this. It you know 
Oh, a way to fix this would be, let's go back to this thing that existed in Europe between the uh, 5th and 15th centuries called Feudalism. feudalism, where you lived at home and you knitted your own clothes yeah. and you made your own tools and you constructed your own home and you made your own and, wagon. And like, people look at that like, well, that's, I'm not talking about this. I'm just talking. Well, well, no, you are. That's, that's the important thing to recognize yeah. about this. Trade is trade, whether or not it's trade with my neighbor, trade with the local business owner, trade with the company across the state, or trade with the company across the ocean. The question is this, was the trade voluntary? Now, for instance, if you're allowing slave labor to build your iPhone, okay, now we're talking about something that's that there's a moral quandary yes, involved course, here, right? Yeah. But it, but if somebody is if somebody is willing to produce a product at, at a at a cheaper rate because within their economy that they're at they can afford to do it and that's that makes sense for them. Okay. Well, then I don't mind buying it at that cheaper rate. Not to mention the fact that do we really want to tell American do we really want to tell American students? in an incredibly expensive educational system that we want you to be competitive with people that are living in another country with a literacy rate of less than 30%. We, we want you to be competitive with them in the same jobs. No. Oh my gosh. We live in an advanced industrial high-tech high economy. We want our students and kids to recognize that their lifelong ambition probably should not be engaging in an industry where they can be outcompeted by by someone that can't read or write in a foreign country. That doesn't make any sense. Allow for competitive advantage to work the way it's supposed to work. I don't hire my doctor to fix my car, right? I don't hire I, I don't I don't hire someone uh, in New York to to do a, a job where I can't pay them to to afford to live in New York, right? We engage we all engage in a, in in um, competitive advantage with everything that we do, right? The reason why I don't grow my own, well, I don't grow a lot of my own food. I'm starting to grow a lot of it. I was about to say, you do do a lot more of it now. (laughs) But the reason why I don't make my own clothes is because my time is so much more valuable spent doing the things that I'm good at in order to make money so that I can pay somebody else to make my clothes. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's, that's the beauty that, that, of trade. That's the core emphasis of how capitalism works. Yeah. I've got one more question that is an absolute Well, wait, must I haven't finished ask. this one okay. because there was, there was three components to this. There All was right. the, there was the, should they be paying more on corporate taxes? Um, why are they doing this? And then the third one is, is they're paying, they're not paying their people livable wages. Yeah. This gets into the whole equitability. Yeah, this this is the part. So there, there's two things here. I hate the term livable wage only because I don't know what it really means, right? A, a livable wage, I guess means that you can pay for basic food, clothing, housing, um, you know, w- within the geographical area that you live in. But the thing is, is that a job doesn't exist to provide you with a livable wage. Jobs exist because somebody created an enterprise where they needed something done that they couldn't do themselves or it didn't make sense for them to do it. And so what they do is they say, okay, I have this job. Maybe it's super complex and it's in high demand and there's low supply. They're going to be forced to pay you a lot of money. They're going to be forced to. Because if they need you to do it and they can't find it, they're going to have to pay you a lot of money. Then there's other jobs where it's like, this is not, this is not a difficult job. It's not very complex. And there's a ton of people that can do it. I'm not going to pay that person the same amount of money because if I do, then I have to raise the prices on all of the products. And now you're coming in to buy my product and you're like, whoa, what? 
Why am I spending more on this when I can get it cheaper over here? Well, it's because I'm paying, I'm paying for a task. I'm paying way more for a task than I should. Okay. It doesn't make sense. So it's important to understand that a, a, no company on the planet has an obligation to pay you a quote, livable wage. That doesn't make any sense when you think about it. What they have an obligation to do is be honest about the work that you're supposed to do for them and the price that they're willing to pay for that work. And then you get to decide whether or not you're willing to do it. Now, if you don't like it or if, or if it's very low, then you're going to say, okay, you know what? Maybe I need this money right now. I Like I need it. I got to pay my mortgage or I got to pay my rent or whatever it is. So I'm going to do it. But as soon as I'm doing that, I'm looking for other ways that I can make more money. I'm looking to make myself more valuable to where this company has to pay me more because if they don't, somebody else will. That is the natural progression. One of the, one of the biggest things that Thomas Sowell talks about that is so powerful is that when we talk about these quintiles, the bottom 20%, the top 1%, here's what most people don't understand. 75% of people within their life will actually be in the top 20% of income earners in the United States. 70% of the people in the top 1% right now won't be there next year. Most of the people in the bottom 20% won't be there by the time they hit 26. See, they talk about these quintiles and they want you to have this idea that the 1% is a permanent class of people. And the bottom 20% is a permanent class of people. Now, is it true that there are people that are, are in those places for generations? Yes. But the vast majority of people within a market economy within the United States, I've, I was in the bottom 10% when I started off. And I worked my way up. What, what's the number one indicator that somebody has wealth in this country? Age. Why? <laughs> Because you gain experience. Your, your labor becomes more valuable in the market. You're able to charge more for it. A lot of the people working at Walmart are doing there for one of two reasons. Either A, it's an entry-level position, or B, it's supplemental income, or C, a lot of these companies that also have jobs that are not as, um, you know, it's a, a lot of them will open them up to people that either have records or they might have some sort of other disability that makes it difficult for them to be able to find employment in other places. And so you look at all these combined factors and what you end up concluding is, is well, no, it's not that they're screwing over their employees because their employees don't have to work there. Walmart doesn't force, when Walmart opens up, it does not go and round up people in the fields. It doesn't go round up people at high tech jobs and make them work as cashiers. That's not what happens. They find people that want a job working at Walmart and then they give them one. And then the turnover rate is very high because people generally get some work experience or, or they, they, they get on. through and then they, they go on. to school or something like right, that. Or something yeah. like that. So we need to understand that a lot of the people working in minimum wage, that's 25 and under. And most people, if you work in the same job for more than six months, you, you won't be making minimum wage. So, so this idea that it's this permanent class of people that are just stuck there no matter what for the rest of their lives, that is true of some people. In almost every case, though, that's usually because there's some sort of debilitating component, right? There, there could be a disability involved, or it might be because they're dealing with issues of you know, uh, substance abuse or, or they're retired and they're just looking for some supplemental income. That, that, is, an, that is one of the common things that like the YMCA was one of the people that fought against 
um, the minimum wage increase in Virginia because they said, you, you don't understand. We have people that come in that they work at the YMCA because it provides them an opportunity to stay involved with their community. And the reason why they get paid minimum wage is because we don't require a lot out of them. If you, if you start making us charge more... We're going we to we're we're fire the nice elderly person that we don't need to do a whole lot right now. We're going to replace her with somebody else, and we're going to give them more work to do. We're going to have to. You're forcing us to. So that's what I would say. Now, some people will come in and say the reason why Walmart does that is because the government provides supplemental income through food stamps and everything else. So Walmart is paying them less than what they actually should pay them because the government's coming in using tax dollars. So my, my answer to that is don't blame Walmart. Blame the government yeah. because they're the ones creating those conditions to where Walmart has to do this in order to be competitive. Re real quick, it's also worth noting that a lot of these major corporations like Amazon actively lobby to raise the minimum wage. Yes. And actively lobby for things like like online sales taxes and stuff like yeah. that because they can pay it and they know that a startup cannot. Yeah. Um, why, why would they do that, Nick? For what he just for what Christian just said is like a lot of the more powerful established companies which have a, a, a much larger market share. They have a big moat. Um they, yeah, they have a much larger market share and they also have usually diversity of products. So they can afford to lose money in one area while making money in another. They will they a will go in and they will, ask, they will ask for higher regulations. They will ask for more taxes. They will ask for all of this because they know it will run their competition out of business. And so you have to ask yourself, is that really what you were intending? I mean, it, it's fascinating to me that the more regulated the economy becomes, the more higher taxes that we get, the more consolidation you yeah. see within the economy yeah. at the expense of smaller competitors. You're, you're, Christian, you're, you're, you just used the term moat. Can you define that real quick? It's an economic moat. It means that there's barriers to entry. So for for example, and I love this as an example, one of the most prominent industries in the entire world with a massive economic moat is railroads. Yeah. Because who's going to spend $100 billion laying 3,000 miles worth of track all across the country? That's a natural moat. Now, there's other moats involved with that because railroads are heavily regulated and they're forced unionized by the federal government. So... There's moats there. There's barriers to entry, which explains why a hundred years ago, there were like five or six times more railroads than there are now. It's instead you've seen a trajectory of consolidation within the industry as, as fewer yeah. and fewer companies merge with, with each other because no new ones are being created. Yeah. And arguably no new ones ever will be created anymore yeah. as long as we have the current regulatory structure. So that's how a moat works. There's one question that I have that I think needs to be asked. Um, in this in in this yeah. live stream, and it is I just want to know why the IRS is this an audience question? This is an audience okay. question. Yeah, I just want to know why. Give the, the name, please. I I unfortunately don't have the name. I okay. copied it. Oh. Um, I just want to know why the IRS has to have American citizens calculate their own taxes <laughs> when they already know how much you have to pay. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting. Uh, there's this meme that was going around for a while that it was like, "Hey, I want to buy my pay my taxes." Okay, you need to figure that out and pay it. Oh, okay. Well, do you know the number? Yes. Well, can you just give me the number? No, you got to figure it out. Oh, okay. Well, what happens if I get it wrong? Like, do you just give me a warning? Oh no, we'll we'll cart you off to jail and we'll increase the penalties. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's it was it was it was this total joke of a system that we have. Um, no, I I agree. I I think it's really problematic. Now, one of the things that you understand is that. Most people are paying uh, taxes through automatic uh, deduction, automatic withdrawals, right? So from right. your employer. So your employer is responsible for collecting uh, the taxes for the government, right? The, the IRS, this is another thing that is crazy. The IRS doesn't collect taxes. Okay. The IRS makes sure that 
businesses collect taxes for them and then hands it to them. And then they conduct audits to make sure that the businesses got it right and then punish the businesses or individuals when they don't. What I find so frustrating is there are a lot of employees or contractors that will you that will decide whether or not to take a job based on whether or not the company does take out the taxes for them. And yeah. I, and I hear that and I'm like, no, if you just paid your own taxes yourself, yeah. you would think about this whole situation differently. Yeah. And you, yeah. Well, that was one of the things Milton Friedman admitted getting wrong is he would say, well, yeah, the most efficient way to collect these taxes would be for automatic withdrawal from the paycheck. And what it does is it creates a scenario where people really don't have a concept of how much they're paying in taxes Mm -hmm. because each month it just, it never enters their, it never enters their bank account in the first place. And then at the end of the year, many of them get a tax return like, Oh, this isn't so bad. And it's like, well, no, if, (laughs) first of all, if it was entering your bank account and then leaving your bank account, you'd be like, what the hell? (laughs) That's why Hamilton doesn't pay him until they do. It's all all at once. Like all of a sudden you realize, oh, I am not getting a good deal out of this. Or you'd at least be a little bit more. That's one of the other reasons why I think a fair tax is is pretty cool. (laughs) The reason why is because everybody has to pay it. Right now, politicians get away with saying, we're going to raise taxes, but not on you. We're going to raise it on the rich. And nobody really puts themselves in the category of the rich when they're thinking about this. And then the end result is, is like, oh, what do I care? But if every time, if, if the only way taxes could go up is this, if they were going up, if, if they were increasing sales taxes, every time they did that, 300 million Americans yeah. would be like, you're going to do what? Yeah. What for? What are you spending it on? And that leads me, that leads me where there's a couple, there's just a couple more things we're going to get to quickly. And then I want to get into reading off some of the things that the government spends money on. Another myth I want to, I want to dispel is this idea that redistribution, you know, that the government's job is to create quote equity in society, which more and more has been defined. It's not the actual definition, but more and more it's been defined as equality of outcome. And recognizing that, well, because not everyone starts off with the same advantages, it's the government's job to level the playing field. This is a very, very dangerous situation because the only way you could do that is basically destroying individual freedom and choice. Because now you're going to have a you're going to have a third party, the government deciding what fair looks like. You're going to have a third party deciding what equitable looks like. And the only way that they can get to the sort of equity they're talking about is with a whole lot of violence. That's it. Because you're not if you worked really, really hard all of your life in order to build up your bank account, get your house, finally get that property that you wanted. And then the government comes in and goes, we're going to take this away and we're going to give it to somebody else. One of the first questions you would ask is, wait a second, I I followed all the rules. I did what I was supposed to do. And now you're taking this from me. And then you're also going to ask, who are you giving it to? We're giving it to somebody that has less. Wait, that's it? You're not going to ask why they have less? They could have less. They could have less. Because a fire came through and burned everything down. In which case, I might be sympathetic to that and I'd be willing to give you money in order to help them out. Or they could have less because they've decided to deal meth. And those two ways of having less are not the same. But the way the government largely determines who's going to get more and who's going to get less is based off of how much you have without ever asking the question, why? And when you create a system, when you create an economic system and a tax system that is no longer based on saying the government has to collect some proceeds in order to provide essential services that the government is uniquely suited toward and moves into a situation where the government is going to decide who wins and who loses, who gets what based off of what politicians who need 50% plus one of the vote to win decide is fair or equitable 
get ready for a society where it is no longer pushing toward meritocracy, get ready for a society which is no longer pushing toward how do we, how do we be the best at what we're doing? How do we find our place in society and, and benefit not only ourselves, but our families and our community? No, 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 it's none of that. Now it's all about how do I get the most connections to the politicians who are ultimately going to decide, regardless of what I do, who gets what? Lobbying becomes the most valuable profession in the economy, and that is the way to destroy the economy. Bastiat warned us about this. Um, he actually writes um, in, in his uh, um, essay, Justice and Fraternity, if socialists mean that under extraordinary circumstances for urgent cases, the state should set aside some resources to assist certain unfortunate people to help them adjust to changing conditions, we will, of course, agree. This is done now, and we desire that it be done better. There is, however, a point on this road that must not be passed. It is the point where government foresight would step in to replace individual foresight and thus destroy it. Yeah. Um, well, and, and he, I mean, he, everything he says, of, I mean, he, he has written like treatises on this. I, I encourage anybody that, that's listening either live or, or listening after we're done recording. If you have not had a chance to like read anything from Bastiat, just look it up. It's all free in the public domain on the internet. You, you, you just read any of his essays. And he talks about many of the things that we brought up in today's episode. Nick, I know that there's, well, a, and I want to read one other quote okay. from Bastiat because it's right, right on this thing. Cause he distinguishes between plunder and profit. Oh, this is a great things. one. Yes. And he goes, when plunder, because again, profit is when you and I voluntarily exchange and I end up making additional money as a result of, of that exchange that we both agreed to right. and both found benefit in. Plunder is when you take something by force. And this is what Bastiat wrote. He goes, when plunder becomes a way of life for a group of men in a society, over the course of time, they create for themselves a legal system that authorizes it and a moral code that glorifies it. That is where we're at right now when you look at leftist leftist economic politics, the politics of Bernie Sanders, of Elizabeth, of Elizabeth Warren, of AOC, is all rooted in this idea that the government must plunder in order to redistribute. The plunder is the legal code that authorizes them to do so. And the redistribution is what gives them, quote, the moral authority that this is for the good of people. By the same token, and this is the part where the left actually, this is the part where many on the left have a point, right? I want to give them their due here. Many on the left look at our tax code and they say, wait a second, I'm watching all these rich people get away with all this stuff that they shouldn't be getting away with. And their response is, well, we need to stop that. Well, how do you want to stop it? More government power. Or if they're going to get away with it, well, then I want these people to get it too. No, the solution is not to increase the number of people engaging in plunder. The solution is to stop the plundering. But they want a system where they get to pick and choose who gets to plunder and who doesn't and who will be plundered and who won't. To build an Amazon in 2023, it's likely significantly more difficult than it was when Jeff Bezos started and founded Amazon because there are likely more regulations now on imports, exports, sales Hamilton, taxes. Yeah. To that point, the um, the man that founded Home Depot said, if if I was trying to uh, establish Home Depot today in the modern era, I, I wouldn't be able to. I mean, it, it's, so no, you're you're totally right, Hamilton. No, the more the more difficult you make it, the more and well, and it's interesting. The 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 founder of Home Depot hates that fact. There are other companies that set up that love that they fact. Love it. They love the fact that nobody else is going to be able to legally compete with them. Bring up, um, I want to bring up one other thing here. <laughs> uh, this is let me see where where is it? Is it the Rand Paul Festivus? No, no, we're getting into that one last. Okay. Um, no, the the one. Okay, yeah, this one right here. Okay. 
<laughs> all right. So we've kind of talked about all the different taxes. We've talked about a lot of the common myths. We've answered questions from the audience. And Christian, if we have more questions from the audience, please let me know because we'll, we'll get right to them. Okay. But I want to talk about this real quick. This is the uh, this is a, a thing that was done in Massachusetts. It's been done other places too, but Massachusetts is, is one of the main ones where um, they actually have a program for voluntary tax payments. If you would like to give the government more of your money because you think it's a good use of your resources and you want to support all these programs, you may do so. And what's interesting is the state of Massachusetts, which has a program for voluntary tax payments, but the Boston Globe revealed that Elizabeth Warren somehow couldn't bring herself to cop off additional money to finance bigger government. And then here was the, here was the thing. Elizabeth Warren acknowledged this morning that she does not pay a voluntary higher tax on her state income taxes, a question her campaign had previously refused to answer. State Republicans have criticized Warren, who has earned a six-figure salary and owns assets worth millions, for her previous refusal to answer whether she pays a voluntary higher rate, calling her an elitist hypocrite who lectures others about the responsibility to pay higher taxes. John Kerry also decided... John Kerry also decided that he wouldn't pay extra taxes to the state's politicians. John Kerry sailed into hot water last year when tax returns revealed that he also paid the Bay State's lower tax rate. Perhaps he intended to pay Massachusetts' higher rate, but his calculator slid off his yacht. <laughs> hmm. the, the point is, the point is, and, and this is Daily Caller did a thing too where they went around to all these like big time like increased tax politicians and said, well, would you voluntarily pay more? And they said, well, no, that's not. The problem is we need to get everybody to pay more. Right? It's never it's never their responsibility. It's always a corporate responsibility. And just remember, corporate corporate responsibilities fall on no one. Mm. It's just like there's no such thing as corporate rights. There's no such thing as corporate responsibilities. There's individual rights. There's individual responsibilities. That's it. And if these people want to pay more because they think it is a good investment within society, they could. They just choose not to. And what's interesting is that even when you look at the rate of uh, giving to charity, Woke progressives are far more likely to give to charities which are either in the arts and entertainment world or associated with a political outcome than conservatives. Conservatives are far more likely to give to institutions which are actually trying to alleviate human suffering. The most charitable state in America is Mississippi. Yeah, which is just, and it's also one of the poorest. Also one of the poorest. Yeah, it's 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 usually dead poorest. last or tied with with yeah. with West Virginia for poorest, it, yeah. and it's also a very conservative state. Yeah, even the Democrats in Mississippi are very conservative. Yeah. So, no, I mean that just come. I mean that that's embarrassing. I mean that that really just well, but, shows. But you know the, what? I think there's. I think they're smart. And here's why. We're gonna get to. I'm gonna I'm gonna read off some things now, and I want yeah. you and the audience to guess. How much your government, because again, we have to have all this money. And remember, whenever they're asking for the money, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Whenever they're advocating to take your money by force, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's always for the children or for infrastructure, crumbling bridges, right? Or veterans, right? That's why they're taking your money. It's for those things. But then when it comes to spending your money, <laughs> Let's look. Let's look at some of the uh, the most popular ways that they've decided to spend your money. All right, so I'm going to list something off. I'm going to read this off. You got to tell me how much they spent. Okay. All right. <laughs> Unnecessary printing. So this is now. Keep in mind, almost everything that the government does. Uh, you know, like in in Virginia. We have a little iPad that we use, and people could look at them and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the state of Virginia gave you a, a you know $1,000 iPad. Well, what they, what they still do on top of that, which is a little bit ridiculous to me, is they print out like the daily calendar. They print out the budgets. They, 
this is like a lot of printer ink. It's a lot of paper. And those things go right in the trash. Oh the day my gosh. That, when every the day's day, over. every day they print out the calendar for every delegate, every Senator and every day gets thrown out and a new one gets printed. So that gives you an idea. So of what all the ink and we're paper, talking about. all the ink and paper. So how much do you believe that the government is said, this federal? This is federal. Oh, it's got to be millions, right? It's got to be. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Hamilton, how think much, of all the we're, departments. We're gonna we're gonna go back and forth. Federal government, federal government. How much did they spend on printing? This is like in a, in a in a year, Christian. I, it, it's it's got to be tens, if not hundreds, of millions. Dude, I'm not I, I'm not asking for what it's got to be. I'm asking for your guess. I, I'm guessing three hundred and fifty eight million. Three hundred fifty eight million. A hundred million. That that's the low end estimate. Nine hundred and thirty million dollars. Oh printing, 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 printing stuff out. Not printing money. That that's <laughs> way more expensive. I was about to say printing money. Um, <laughs> All right, here's the one. Here's the one. Here's the one. <laughs> The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs spent money to maintain hundreds of buildings that have been vacant for years. For years. So I'm going to use deductive reasoning and say that this number's got to be higher than the printing numbers. Well, this is just one department. Oh. Just the Department of Veterans Affairs. So how much did they spend maintaining empty buildings? Can you tell us how many buildings? No, I don't, have, I don't have that. Number. I'd like to. I'd, I'd like to phone a friend. What do you? What do you? Hamilton, what do you think? I'm starting with you this time, oh, Hamilton. Man. What do you think? Um, how, much did, how much did the the VA spend maintaining buildings that have been vacant for years? I'm going to guess about eighty million. Eighty million. Um, I will guess. Well, it was it was almost a billion before for all departments. So right. I, I'll I'll do a lower one and I'll say twenty five million. A hundred and seventy five million dollars. Wow. Okay, I need to start really so up in these, these numbers. So just remember, when they're telling you you're not paying your fair share, we need all this money because otherwise people are going to starve to death in the streets, they then go out and spend $175 million maintaining buildings that have been vacant for years. Why don't they sell them? Oh, I, you want to have some interesting conversations on how difficult it is for a, a, a for the government to sell property. To sell yeah. property. All right, here we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How would you like Uncle Sam to pay you to play World of Warcraft? Our tax dollars went to researchers at the University of California at Irvine to fund screen time on video games such as World of Warcraft, according to Senator Tom Coburn's report. How much did the government spend in order to fund research on students playing video There's games. No way, that's a hundred million. I'm I'm gonna say that that's that's three million. I'm going with twelve point five million. Three million. I got it. He dead got on. it dead wow. on. Chris got that one dead on. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. These are. Just, this is like I'm I'm laughing, so I I don't start crying. Okay. <clears throat> the U.S. government spent this much on parliamentary strengthening in Eastern Europe. We taught, we taught Eastern European politicians how to balance and follow a budget. The irony. And to engage in parliamentary processes. The irony. How much did we spend teaching Eastern European legislators how to follow parliamentary thing to include balancing and following a budget? I'm going to go with... 2.5 million. 2.5 million. Oh, man. How many countries? 
Am I allowed to know that? It just says Eastern Europe. Just Eastern Europe. Okay, so that's got to be more than one country then. So, yeah. um, and we give a lot in foreign aid. So I, I, I'll, I'll guess five million. This is 2011. It was 2.6 million. Oh wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah, but, right, wait. Did uh, you I, look I, this up? No, no, I haven't right. even looked at it. <laughs> I was right. gonna say the producers probably looking at the no, show notes I, I here. I promise I haven't looked at any. All right, here we go. Um, okay. <laughs> During the Super Bowl. The U.S. Census Bureau bought a 30-second spot to air a commercial that was so bad and so terribly produced that it was banned after it aired, leaving most of its viewers completely uncertain of its meaning. Super Bowl commercials, U.S. Census, U.S. Census Bureau, so we're not talking about all government agents, U.S. Census Bureau. How much did the U.S. Census Bureau spend on a 30-second spot at the Super Bowl that was so bad that it was banned after it aired? What year was this? Doesn't say. Um, five million is going to be my guess. I'm going to go with eight million. Two point five million. Really? Oh wow, they got a discount. They did. I, I'm surprised <laughs> they didn't spend as much money producing yeah. this crappy advertisement. All right, here's another one. How much did the federal government spend on zoo poetry? The money was I don't spent. Even know what that is? The money was spent to create poetry in four different large zoos: Little Rock, New Orleans, Milwaukee, and Chicago. This was supposed to be an increase in environmental awareness poetry. This is an, a great example of what <laughs> happens when you give people money that didn't earn it. Yep. And then they think to themselves, well, we have the money and we have to spend it. So we're going to spend it on zoo poetry. Zoo poetry. <laughs> well, and I would tell you exactly how the, the person that voted against this, right? Or the person that would have voted against this. Let me tell you how that commercial was. Delegate Nick Freitas voted against critical spending for local ecological environmental awareness programs that could save hundreds of jobs and help protect our environment. That's how that commercial gets written. Lightning strikes. Yes, grainy, uh, yeah, grainy, grainy footage. Photo. Black and white. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ominous music. Yeah. Me kicking a baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but like... Okay, so, right, so, so how so about answer, zoo poetry? Four zoos. My, my answer is a million dollars. Okay. Uh, let's go with have you. No, I haven't. I haven't looked well, at anything based off your reaction. <laughs> it's a million, a million dollars. That's right. Your tax dollars. Yeah, I was thinking two hundred fifty thousand per zoo. Oh, a million, that's nothing. A million dollars. Million dollars. All right. Let me see. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> parents, you might want to. If you got kids listening, <clears throat> the National Institute of Health was given stimulus funds. To study the significance of genital washing program on South African men. What? <laughs> that, so that sounds like a topic that we would bring up in an episode dealing with woke culture wars. This sounds like uh, something I would. This is, sounds like something I would throw in there as. Is this, did this actually true happen? True or false? True or false? All right. The National Institute of Health, one agency. One agency, National Institute. This is this is Fauci's Fauci's people right here. Oh, that was given stimulus everything. funds to study the significance of a genital washing program on South African men. How much? Oh my god! Did the National Institute of Health spend six point five million? No, no, it can't be that much. Five hundred thousand. Eight hundred thousand. Oh, <laughs> darn it! Eight hundred thousand. I, I mean, even one cent is too much for that. But All right, here we go. Here we go. Cronyism. <laughs> Cronyism at its best, baby. You ready for this? <clears throat> How much money? Did the federal government spend to subsidize an IHOP in an underserved area of Washington, D.C.? One IHOP 
in one area of one city, how much did the federal government spend to subsidize? Oh that well, it's house? in D.C., so it's got to be an inflated number, <laughs> right? I mean, because the politicians only are, are only going to care about things in their in their so hometown. How right? much so, was it, Hamilton? How much? Two hundred fifty thousand is my guess. Well, I'll go two hundred k. Seven hundred and sixty-five thousand eight hundred twenty-eight dollars. I got bad news for you. This will be my last episode of <laughs> I, making the argument. I came, I'm going to go start an IHOP in DC. I came area. in conservatively because of how far <laughs> I, I was off. I thought that was oh a conservative number. I I, yeah. I I honestly thought it was going to be like fifty yeah. k or something like yeah. that. How do, how does an IHOP spend that much money? Seven hundred fifty thousand. It was you, you know what it is. You know what it is. You know what it is. Property taxes. <laughs> it actually could be i bet you a huge chunk of it is on that yeah okay here we go uh i, I we'll do we'll do a few more of these oh my gosh let's oh do my. two more nick and right, i got more. one final oh, question this is to wrap so up. difficult to pick so di okay the, we're Light, gonna go, lightning round we're going back to the national institute of health because those guys have had so much money to spend. The National Institute of Health spent this much money to study the behavior of male prostitutes in Vietnam. Oh, my goodness. All right. National Institute of Health spent this money to study the behavior of... Na I, I wonder... <laughs> I wonder... Hamilton, I, I want I you don't to even guess first. Know, I don't even want to know what that research entailed. Yeah, what does behavior mean I there? don't even want to know what that research I don't think I want the definition. Male prostitutes in Vietnam, how much <laughs> the National Institute of Health spend on that? 450,000. I was going to say 500,000. 442,340. Oh, wow. wow, you really I, I'm, you I'm, were spot I'm, on at how much it costs I'm, I'm, to study I'm, the behaviors oh, of male prostitutes. I mean the, the the correct answer for all of this is too much. <laughs> well, I'm, the, hap I'm, I'm, just, I'm happy. I'm a little bit concerned. I'm a little bit concerned that Hamilton was always he like really spot nailed on. that one. And and Christian didn't think they spent enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy that I got the number somewhat correct or I was at least close. <laughs> oh, my but way too much money. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's there there's one last thing that I want. I I, I we've got to show the audience before we actually wrap up and we get to the closing here. Okay. Hamilton, can you bring up this map that I showed you right yes, before sir. we started recording? We can do that. This is the distribution of income taxes by state in the country. Now, some of these states. Oh, sorry. Well, Keep I have going. no clue what that was, but some of these states technically on paper have no income tax, but then they tax things like dividends or yeah. interest. And so like Washington state on paper, no income tax, but they tax other forms. That's why they're colored. But if you just look at this map, you can immediately see why. And Hamilton, I'm going to ask you to pull up just briefly the uh, Fox business article, okay. just the headline, and then, and then go back to this map here. Oh, if you pull dear. up this uh, Fox Business headline, whoa and behold, high tax state exodus accelerates as more Americans flee to Florida and Texas. And then the subtitle, California and New York suffer biggest resident losses in 2022 as Americans flee high tax states. Now go back to the map. Yep. Gee, what color is New York and California? <laughs> oh my and what's the income tax in Florida and Texas? Oh, that's right. Florida and Texas have no income tax, and California and New York are literally the two highest right. tax states in the country for income tax. And California, the highest marginal tax rate is over 13%. That's insane. Yeah. I did the math. Somebody that makes $100,000 in... Um, uh, um, you know, working in uh, in New York. In fact, I'll, I'll do the math live right here. Uh, somebody that's making a hundred thousand dollars a year that's that's living in New York that then decides to um to to relocate to Miami. 
the person making a hundred gram has a tax burden of over 30,000. So the, their marginal tax rate is almost a third. Almost a third of their yeah. money is just being gone before they even get to touch it, right? And they're left with under $69,000 a year. That, that, that That's like without any yeah. you know contributions or anything like that, j j just base pay, right? Now that same person moving to Miami in Florida is bringing home Oh, after taxes, they have a marginal tax burden of less than 23%. Yeah. So a third of your income being gone immediately living in New York City versus less than a quarter being gone if you moved to just, just moving to Florida. Yeah. And then people wonder why it was something like over 100,000 well, people moved to Florida Christian, from New York in Christian, one year. What you don't understand is the taxes are the price we pay for homeless encampments <laughs> outside our children's elementary schools, right? <laughs> Tax is the price we pay for naked people dropping their syringes on the ground and defecating in the streets of San Francisco. That's what you don't understand, you bigot. Right? I, I guess I'm a bigot. Like I, I guess I'm a bigot because my long term, right. like, like I, I, I don't get it. I mean, well, I, Nick, I want you to close out and-, and All right, well, let, let me, we gotta close out. Let, let, let we me, promised two more. Yeah, you, we only did one. So now we got one I more. I got a question have I have to ask before okay. we're done. All right, All right. so here's, here's the last one. And, and I'm going back to my old alma mater, the Department of Defense. All right, because again, conservatives, we got to we got to take our medicine on this one. Just because yeah. it's a defense expenditure doesn't mean it it makes a lot of sense. All right, <laughs> a gas station in Afghanistan. Oh no! <clears throat> the Department of Defense built a gas station in Afghanistan that fills cars with compressed national gas or CNG. The problem is almost no Afghan cars run on CNG. <laughs> How much did the Department of Defense spend on this project? Uh, 225000 Well, if it cost New York City, I think it was almost $2 million to build a bathroom. John Stossel actually did an episode yeah, on yeah. that. That's a great episode. Yeah. Right, so 200000 so, so using that as a baseline to build a bathroom, yep. and it's the military, yep. I'm, I'm going to guess... Um, I, I need to revise five, mine. $5 I'm going to revise my answer to be $3.8 million. You're both, you're both off. You're both off. And okay, they were building a gas station? $43 million. For okay. Oh my. Can I just say, can I just say, knowing a little something about how contracts work in Iraq, right? Not even Afghanistan, like in Iraq, there was probably a little something in overhead that got <laughs> there was there was probably a couple tribal leaders that um, Well, the good news, Nick, is that we are no longer having to subsidize the forty three million dollar gas station in Afghanistan because we lost that yeah. war. Well, here, yeah. here's what I look. So, but, here's what you need. And the Taliban the part, now run look, the gas if station. Being, if we're being intellectually honest here, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Was forty three million dollars used to build a gas station? No, it was used to build a villa for an Afghan warlord in the Caribbean. <laughs> right? That's a little bit different, right? The gas station was probably like a million tops. Hamilton, right? Yeah. And the rest of this went to like ammunition, roadside bombs, <laughs> training the Taliban, and, you know, again, villas for various By the ways. way, the comments are like blowing up right now. People are like, $40 million for a gas station? $43 million for a gas station to go with Hamilton, what's your, what's your question so, that you wanted to ask? So, so Nick, you are in a, a very unique position where yeah. you're not a career politician, meaning you're not... Uh, We're a citizen legislator. A citizen legislator, yeah. that's what I, I'm looking I don't, for. It's not the primary so, source of my income. Right, so you have two to three months out of every year that you're in session, uh, but the rest of the year you have a normal job like everyone else. Yeah. But during those two to three months every year, you play a role in deciding or try attempting to guide yeah. where the tax system goes. I get in the one state vote in 141. <laughs> so 
what I find so fascinating about this is, you know, Christian and I are obviously not in the House of Delegates in Virginia. We have zero say over where the tax bill goes, what we pay in taxes. It's decided for us by other people. Oh, you, what do you mean you don't have a say? You get to vote for me. Uh, yeah. That's exactly. your say. But so <laughs> expl- this is true. explain to us how your situation is different in that you are on these committees and I th- do, do you feel like even in your position, you lack the ability to make a significant change to the tax code in Virginia? Oh, the, okay, the thing, here's the thing to keep in mind about all this, right? Um, we, we, we don't design government to operate efficiently. Right. All right. And, and, and there's a reason for that. You want to know a super, super efficient government? North Korea. When Kim Jong-un wants something done, it's done or he feeds you to a pack of dogs, right? Like, that's boom. You it want may to talk not be about, done well. It won't be done well. It'll be expensive. It'll still suck. <laughs> but my gosh, it's done quickly or else somebody's kibble. The one is in, in, in the United States, we, we've set up a, a, a system of deliberation because we wanted the government to move slow. That's why we have competing power between the House and the Senate and competing power between the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. It, it was all of that. Now, here's sometimes that's frustrating, especially when it seems like the left can move things through so much faster than the right can. And I would say that in, in part, that's because of two very, very different competing philosophies with respect to the role of government. Within the right, we have a lot of argument about what the government should do versus what the government should not do. Within the left, they have a lot of argument on how much they should spend on what the government's already doing, and of course, the government should do more. So when you, so that there is there is a reason why things tend to fly a little bit faster when the left's in power. But yeah, what what it really means is by serving on the finance committee, right, and on a finance subcommittee, um, probably the the part where I have the most power sitting on a subcommittee. Because you usually need five to six votes to, to kill a bill or to pass a bill on a subcommittee. And so now you're one of five or six. Yeah. But then it goes to the full committee. Okay, well, now I'm you know one of 20-something. And then it goes to the full House, and well, I'm one of 100. Well, then it goes over to the Senate, and the whole legislature, now I'm one of 140. Well, the governor's got to sign it. Now I'm one of 141. All right, so it's it's important to remember that it, there's... Oh, there's and last thing, too. And if it's challenged and it goes to the courts... Yeah, it could be. <laughs> you know, who knows? It'll happen. So it, but uh, that is not bad in and of itself, right? We, right. we want we want those those checks on on power. Um, the, the real struggle here is, is for people... <clears throat> the real struggle is for people to understand that there's a lot of things that... that that sound good. Yeah. And it can be done from people that you might, you know, genuinely like or think are really good people. I have colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Um, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it a, a for instance because he, he just retired. And so there's, <laughs> it, it won't, it won't damage his political career that I'm saying something nice about him, but uh, delegate Mark Keem uh, used to represent an area up in, in Fairfax. Um, him and I voted together on almost nothing. Um, but when I had a family of, you know, people that, these were Afghan refugees that were trying to get their family out who had fought alongside Americans and was trying to get protected. And I need to get in touch with the U S Senator real quick. Well, the U S Senator, my U S Senator options are Mark Warner or Tim Kaine. Like I tried to run against Tim Kaine, mm-hmm. right now, now not to say they wanted to help me simply because we have political disagreements, but I knew it would probably be quicker if I called up Mark and I said, Hey Mark, here's the situation. This is what I'm trying to do. Can you help me out? And within 30 minutes, Tim Kaine's, you know, office is on the phone with me. Hey, Delegate Freitas, you know, how do we help this situation? Got him. So, so there are, there are connections like that. Now, when key, when Mark comes up with a bill saying, I want to do this, I believe him when he says he thinks this is going to help. That doesn't mean I agree that it's going to, right. Or it doesn't mean that I agree that the, the, the consequences don't outweigh the potential benefits of what he's talking about. 
and and the the biggest lesson that I think people really need to learn is that you you don't need to you don't need to hate or despise your political opponents. You don't need to assume that every one of them has bad intentions. I believe some of them either out of extreme ignorance that they should be held responsible for or something else. I, I'm I'm very frustrated. Um, and that doesn't excuse the fact that they still want to use coercion to get you to do what they want you to do, right? There's something wrong with that. But that's what we need people to look at it as. We need we need people to start to question this this idea of, oh, solutions, 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 solutions. Nope, as Thomas Sowell said, government doesn't deal in solutions. We deal in trade-offs. And those trade-offs are going to come through the use of coercion and force. And so let's let's just be careful about how much power we give them. Um, but in the end... Yeah, it's it, it gets frustrating when I said people look at me and like, I don't want to hear excuses. I want results. I'm like, okay, well, I voted the right way. I carried the right legislation. I fought for it as hard as I could. You strategized it. Right. I strategized it. I tried other things. But, you know, again, we have a slow process yeah. on purpose. And believe me, you don't want it to be faster. There's there's one comment from the audience that I want to read off because I feel like it's a great way yeah. to, to, to close. This person says... If the average citizen managed their finances like the government handles our finances, we'd all be in cardboard boxes behind the convenience store. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and look, look, here, here's the here's the overall argument I would make about this. Um, there, there are a lot of myths about taxes, and a lot of times it's difficult to try to cover all of them because we're all not sitting there right there with with all of the different references and, and forms, and we're not we're not all experts on pouring through tax data all the time. One of the biggest questions that that really should come up initially whenever we talk about this is what is the purpose of taxes? Now, if you're talking to Art Laffer who was worked for Reagan and whatnot, the purpose of taxes is to take as little as possible, only as little as possible, as fairly as possible to only pay for the essential functions of government. And obviously we have some disagreements on what that is, but if that's a starting point, like, okay, we're going to have a police force, we're going to have the military, maybe we have some money for, for roads or some other things. If that's a starting point, I think we kind of all understand where we're going. The moment taxes become a way that you allow politicians to achieve equity in society or to, to achieve greater prosperity in society, you're not going to get equity, you're not going to get prosperity, you're not going to get any of that. What you're going to get is a system where politicians get to decide what your society looks like and they get to do so in one of the most meaningful ways, which is they get to decide how much you get to keep based off of your labor. Right? That's a very different way to look at taxes. It's very dangerous. That's a very different way to look at taxes. If you're now saying that, no, 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 I want politicians to be the moral and economic arbiters of how much you can make and how it gets spent and what it can get spent on and who you can engage in trade with, you're really running into a real problem of what does it mean to live in a free society? Because freedom is not getting to just elect politicians every two, four, or six years. Freedom is you getting to decide what you do with your life. And a significant portion of that is finding your place in society with respect to the talents that you have in order to make a living for you, your family, to be able to give, to be able to help, to be able to purchase. And, and everyone doing that in, in concert with one another, that's, that's far more indicative of what it means to be free than just electing political leaders. So if, if you accept this notion that what taxes is really is about is our moral and intellectual betters at state capitals, at, in, in, in Washington, D.C., deciding what all of society will look like through taking and redistributing and giving. I'm sorry, you're going to get up with a society that does, does not, not only does it, is it not a free society, but it's not going to be one that actually achieves the economic objectives that we all have. We all want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. And we all know that people are going to produce and people are going to achieve certain standards based not only on their own preferences, but their talents, and that it's not always going to be fair. 
So insofar as we're fighting for the sort of society where we don't let somebody use the law to punish somebody that they disagree with, and we don't use... We don't allow a company to engage in this sort of cronyism, this fascist cronyism, which says, I get special privileges that I'm going to deny to all of my competition. And we also recognize that if you create a society where the more you succeed, the more I punish you in order to reward, not, not just people that are worthy of help, but to reward people based off of nothing more than they have less. When you don't ask that fundamental question, of why does someone have more and why does someone have less in any given situation? Because again, in one situation, if this person has more because they robbed a bank, I want them going to jail. If this person has more because they cheated people, I want them going to jail. If this person has less because a, a tornado came through and wiped out their home and they need help, I, I want to help that person. If this person has less because they decided to make a lot of really, really bad decisions, self-destructive decisions, in their life. Well, then taking money from the person that worked really hard to build up their business from scratch in order to give it to the person that's making self-destructive decisions is not just bad for the person you took from. It's bad for the person that you're co-opting bad decisions within their life. You've helped no one except the politician that now has the power over who wins and who loses based off of nothing more than whether or not they vote for that politician. And that is the fundamental question that we need to get to before we talk about anything else right. with respect to effective government expenditures, effective forms of taxation. What is the purpose of what we're doing? And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be to micromanage society. It should just be to pay for those essential services for which the government is constitutionally authorized to carry out. Right. And anything above and beyond that, you're playing with fire. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much uh, for joining us for this episode. Thank you for the questions. I hope we did a, one of our goals for this episode was to better incorporate your questions throughout yep. the podcast. We're going to get even better at that as, as time goes on. We're looking at different systems yep. that we're also using. Did you want to? Yeah, we, we are planning to add a few things to the stream with getting comments on the screen that we want to highlight. I don't have a, a, quite a timeline on that yet, but that is something we're looking towards in the future. Um, everyone who is in our volley chat knows that volley is going to be shutting down on April 30th. I had promised you all last week that we wouldn't be making an announcement today to where we would be moving, but we need just another day or two to really test a new platform that we had a couple of folks this past weekend that are in our volley chat test we want to make a good decision on that we want to make sure where we move our community chat to somewhere that's going to be a long-term solution one that's going to work well for you for us and we're going to be able to serve you a lot better so we'll get back with you on thursday on that uh but we want to thank everyone in our valley chat who helped us test this new platform and i think that the only thing that you need to remember to do next is to go subscribe to the making the argument channel so we can hit a thousand subscribers by may 1st we are so close to that i think we are probably about 250 subscribers away so we would appreciate your help in that and to our folks who are on audio and not on the live stream if you made it through these two hours thank you <laughs> uh we, we're still kind of testing the waters on length uh, for the live stream, and we want your feedback. Wow, a two-hour a, a two two podcast talking about taxes. I can't imagine why you two guys are still single. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually loved this episode, to be yeah. completely honest. It well, was we, worth the time. Look, we, we are going to bounce around to some other topics. We've, yeah. we've been you know heavy on taxes and some other stuff that's going on in the news. We're actually going to talk about some relational stuff here coming up fairly soon, so stick around for that. And uh, again, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next episode.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.